Every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that each person who belongs to God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 I love you, Lord, with all my heart. I want to love you more and more. I want to know you more. I want to learn and grow in every way, every single day. Today, thank you for your word. It's such a help to me. It clearly lights my way. I thank you that your word teaches me and trains me. It corrects me and disciplines me. It keeps me on the right path. It prepares me for every opportunity and equips me for every challenge I undertake. Even when it's painful, even when it means admitting that I've missed a turn or made a mistake, I'm so grateful to have your direction. I would much rather turn around than keep going the wrong way. Thank you for so faithfully leading me and guiding me. As I spend time in your word today, I ask you to reveal more of yourself to me. Help me to see you and see myself the way you see me. Transform my heart. Renew my mind. Refresh my spirit. And empower me to live victoriously today. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay tuned to immerse yourself in the greatest stories ever told from Pray.com's podcast, Heroes in the Bible. Hello, my name is Matthew Potter, co-founder of Pray.com. And before we start today's episode of Heroes in the Bible, I wanted to ask, do you know what your bank does with your money? At America's Christian Credit Union, your everyday banking helps grow churches, expand the reach of missions agencies, and supports fellow believers across the country. Learn more about specials for switching to ACCU and their nationwide banking capabilities at americaschristiancu.com forward slash pray. Plus, the peace of mind knowing that this credit union is federally insured by the National Credit Union Administration. Hi, I'm Dr. Tony Evans, and I'm excited for you to join me on Heroes in the Bible. Please be sure to follow the podcast on Apple or Spotify so you get the newest episodes right as they come out. Welcome to the epic adventure of David, a story of honor, battle, jealousy, darkness, friendship, love, scandal, and murder. While most people know of David the myth, few know about David the man. In this episode, the stability of the nation is in peril. David is more in the background of this episode allowing us to get more acquainted with a few key characters. Abner, the commander of Saul's army, and the three brothers, Joab, Abishai, and Ashiel. They are on the front lines of a new civil war that has broken out between Judah and Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, plans to punish Judah for making David king. The battle that we witness in this episode is not conventional since they are all Hebrews. No matter what the result of this war turns out to be, it seems like there will be no winners. Whoever is victorious will be so by killing their fellow Israelites. 
The difference between David's army and Abner's army will become clear and reveal a key difference between the old regime and the new regime. David seeks to build his nation on a strong and firm foundation. He will most likely succeed, but at what cost? This episode features the death of a beloved figure reminding us that this is not a fairy tale. But first, we begin with a prelude. We will be taken forward in time to Jesus. He will teach us about bearing fruit and building on a firm foundation. His wisdom will give us the correct lens by which to judge the struggle of David and Abner. When we take Jesus' words and apply them to the Old Testament, we are given the greater perspective of each story. Listen carefully to Jesus' words and hold them up as a filter by which to see episode 19, A Civil War Begins. Prelude to chapter 19. Jesus rose to his feet. The wind began to pick up behind him. He took a deep breath, being mindful of every word he was about to say next. Treat others the way you wish to be treated. This is the true heart behind the law of God. And understand this, that the gate to the kingdom of heaven is narrow. There are many other paths that are easy and wide open. However, its ease is deceptive. It is the way of death. The true path of God is hard. It requires sacrifice, struggle, and humility. This is why many will choose to avoid it and ultimately perish. Jesus began to walk down the hill and place his hand on people's shoulders as he passed through the crowd. Every healthy and good tree bears fruit that people can enjoy. Every bad tree produces thorns and poison. The same is with our hearts. A good heart will produce good actions. Likewise, a bad heart will produce corrupt actions. Words are not enough. Not everyone who declares to know God actually knows Him personally. Be mindful that you seek Him in spirit and truth. Jesus was now behind the crowd. He looked down and saw a stone the size of his palm on the ground. He picked it up and held it up in the air for all to see and said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them is like a wise person who built their house on a firm foundation. When the rain fell and the floods came, their house was sturdy and resilient. Yet there will be those who do not listen and do not do these things. They are like people who build their homes on wavering sand. When troubles come, they will be washed away. Jesus looked at the crowd one final time, smiled, and dropped the stone. He departed with his disciples. The crowd simply stood there, astonished. Chapter 19 a civil war begins. Resting on a high place overlooking the land of Gibeah was the palace of the dead King Saul. Its large stone structure was a monument to Israel's first king. Within its walls, the elders of Israel convened to choose the next king. News of David's anointing over Judah had reached the other tribes of Israel, and they knew there was a choice that had to be made. Would they gather around the newly anointed King David or would they give the throne to Saul's heir, Ishbosheth? 
torchlights were mounted on the dark stone walls of Saul's throne room. Ishbosheth sat on the throne before the elders, listening to them deliberate before him. Beside the prince was Abner, commander of Saul's armies. He had escaped the onslaught of Mount Gilboa and had returned to usher in the next king. To him, Ishbosheth was the clear choice. He was of Saul's bloodline and represented tradition and stability for the new kingdom. Abner spoke to the elders, reassuring them that Ishbosheth was the rightful and wise choice to be king. Elders of Israel, if we pivot now from the royal bloodline of King Saul, it communicates to the people that any mongrel can become king if he is likable enough. If we do not affirm Ishbosheth as rightful king, we set a precedent for every king that comes afterwards. We do not want any commander, insurrectionist, or shepherd thinking they can claim the throne. The instability would ruin our nation before it has a chance to flourish. Many of the elders nodded in agreement. Ishbosheth, as unimpressive and passive as he was, represented a sense of control. However, not all were convinced. Jonathan was the rightful heir before he was killed, one of them said. Yet even Jonathan recognized David as the next to take the throne. He gave him his armor and ring, if I'm not mistaken. What shall we say to those who believe David to be the anointed king? Ishbosheth stirred in place. The throne seemed too large for him. Saul, being a massive man in personality and stature, seemed to fill it much better than he. Before Ishbosheth could respond, Abner interjected. Jonathan never wanted the throne to begin with. His affirmation of David was purely because he did not want the mantle himself. What say you then, Ishbosheth? Do you desire to be king? The elders asked. Ishbosheth gave a wry smile. Of course, he said in a condescending tone. If anyone deserves to be king, it is I. I am Saul's remaining son, and all this deliberation between me and David vexes me. I will continue my father's legacy, mount further attacks on the Philistines, and reclaim the dignity of our nation. Ishbosheth stood to his feet and walked among the elders. You can tuck tail and run to Judah for all I care. However, the glory of Israel and the throne established by Samuel and my father remains here in Gibeah with me. The elders stirred, annoyed at Ishbosheth's tone. Abner cleared his throat and escorted Ishbosheth back to the king's quarters. The prince left, and Abner was alone with the elders. He opened his arms and shrugged. My brothers, we are at a crucial point. The Philistines have delivered a devastating blow and taken parts of our country by force. To uproot a system set by our king and establish David would be unwise. Our people need reassurance that what Saul began will be finished. I assure you, as his cousin and his commander, that I will get it done. We are all aware of the rumors regarding Ishbosheth's mother and the sins he was born from. However, Ishbosheth will be king in name only. I will lead us to victory. Then, after the dust settles, we can discuss the future of the throne. The elders pondered Abner's words. In front of the throne where Saul once sat, they agreed to make Ishbosheth king. Yet Abner would be the one to lead the nation. The sun was high above Hebron, and the heat of the afternoon beat down on David's neck. 
Sweat dripped from his forehead onto the dust below. He pulled back his curls and gripped his sword firmly. He set his right foot back, held his shield up with his left arm, and swung violently down at a wooden beam beside him. The metal split the wood, and splinters went flying past his face. He pulled his sword up and looked at the men standing near him. The power of your strike comes from the firmness of your stance, he explained. If your feet are unstable, you sacrifice momentum in your swing. Everything begins with your foundation. If your foundation is not secure, you are destined to collapse. It is like a house built on sand. If you are not on solid ground, anything can blow you down. The young man standing at attention nodded. They mimicked David's movements. David was pleased with their improvements. It had only been a few days since his coronation as king, and there was much to be done. David knew that the safety of his kingdom had to be his top priority, so he attended to his army personally. However, now that he was king, his time to train and command the men would wane. He needed a commander. Abishai approached David and bowed. My king, he said reverently. David smirked and gave a chuckle. <laughs> that will take getting used to, Abishai. Forgive me if I seem embarrassed. The two of them laughed and began walking towards the barracks. Asahel, Abishai's swift younger brother, joined them. I am eager to meet your brother, David said. I hear he is an excellent tactician and has served the tribe of Judah well in training up their army. Abishai nodded. Yes, our brother Joab has only ever been good at one thing, warfare. He was a faithful commander in Saul's army, and more recently the leader of the ranks of Judah. David nodded. I am sure he will serve us well. We will need a well-trained leader to lead us against the Philistines. They reached the barracks where Joab was giving orders to the blacksmiths. He instructed them on the necessary mold and shape of the hilts. David was impressed with the way he carried himself. He was clearly a military man, rough, straight as an arrow, and serious. Along with Abishai and Asahel, Joab was his sister's son. However, he was older than David, and the two had never met. Joab stood a head taller than most of the men. His broad shoulders were set back, revealing his muscular chest and battle-worn arms. David approached, and Joab bowed immediately. My king, it is good to finally have you here to lead us. David gestured for Joab to stand. I am in need of a great deal of help, Joab. And your two brothers tell me you are the perfect man to lead our army. Abishai and Asahel smiled at their older brother. Joab smiled in return and nodded to David. Thank you for taking care of my brothers while they were with you in the wilderness. I feared for their safety often, but I knew they were in good hands. Joab broke his stern demeanor for a moment to bring Asahel close under his arms. My brothers are more important to me than any riches one could gain. I am proud that they decided to follow you. David chuckled to see Asahel treated like a beloved child. He did not receive such affection from his brothers growing up, and now that he was king, never would. David gestured for Joab to walk with him, and the two spoke for a long while about strategy, security, and protecting God's people. Where would you have us begin, Joab? There are many threats coming from outside our borders. How do we decide which requires our attention most? Joab answered immediately and matter-of-factly. He did not parse words or filter his thoughts politically. He spoke clearly, saying, 
the largest threat to you and your people are not from the outside, but from within our borders. The rest of Israel has chosen Ishbosheth as their king, and Abner is at the command of his army. I have reliable sources that tell me Abner is seeking to attack us soon. He desires to secure the entire nation under Ishbosheth. David pondered for a moment. He did not want to march against the children of God. It seemed unsavory and divisive. However, he could not ignore the threat. This means civil war, David said quietly. Joab nodded. The two men continued walking, watching the men train and prepare. Our men are far more skilled and loyal, David said. I know we will be able to handle any attack with few casualties. I say march up against Abner and make the first battle as decisive as possible. Perhaps it will only take one battle to establish our strength. That is wise, my king. I shall gather about five hundred of our best men and meet Abner in the middle. Joab bowed and left. But David stopped and called for Joab again. Joab, in all things, remember that the Lord honors a merciful heart. Joab winced at the words, but bowed his head in deference. He then gathered the men and marched towards Abner. The two sister kingdoms of Israel and Judah met at Gibeon beside a brook flowing into a small pool. Trees surrounded them, and the morning fog slithered low beside the trunks. All was calm for a while. Both armies camped on either side of the river, awkwardly staring at the others. There was something ominous about this upcoming battle. The men were about to fight against their fellow Hebrews. The thought of slaying one another left them uneasy. The morning light shined through the fog and dispersed in a thousand different directions. The brook quietly trickled downstream into the pool. Dragonflies hovered over the calm waters and fish popped up to catch them. Beside the tranquil water, in the coolness of the morning, sat Joab and Abner. The two sat on either side of the pool, with their swords securely in their sheaths. They came to speak about the terms of battle. They realized that if the nation was going to be united again, they could not wipe each other out completely. They needed ground rules. Abner and Joab stared at each other for a while, sizing each other up. Abner broke the silence first. We have more tribes on our side, Joab. There is no need to battle at all if Judah would concede to Ishbosheth as king. Joab shook his head. Abner, you and I both know that the tribe of Judah alone matches the rest of the tribes in size. It is not a matter of size or resource. It is a matter of principle. You and your principles. Abner scoffed. I know what this is really about, Joab. You were passed up by me as commander of Saul's army. Now you back an illegitimate king because he will give you command of an army when Saul would not. Joab gripped the hilt of his sword but did not draw it. His jaw clenched as he tried to compose himself. I do not think you wish to talk about the legitimacy of kings, Abner, when you and I both know Ishbosheth is the son of a whore. Abner stood abruptly to his feet in anger, but Joab did not back down. And I do not think you want to accuse me of being opportunistic, Abner. With Ishbosheth on the throne, you become a king without a crown. All the power is yours to wield, and I even hear rumors about a certain concubine you've been able to enjoy from the king's harem. Abner drew his sword and pointed it at Joab. I suggest you cease speaking, Joab. The two stood with their swords drawn, considering attacking the other. 
However, Abner knew his chances against Joab were small. He sheathed his sword and pointed to the battlefield. Let the young men arise and compete before us. Yes. Joab said silently. Anger boiled deep within his belly. Let us arise. The two armies began with sending champions. Twelve men from the ranks of Abner stood at attention facing twelve men from the ranks of Joab. These were some of the mightiest champions each army had. They composed themselves, readied their swords, and began their attack. Twenty-four men ran with great speed, clashing in the middle of the battlefield. The first strike sounded like thunder crashing from the skies. Each champion parried the blows of the other. It was a chaotic and beautiful dance of equal skill. So equal that neither group could gain the advantage over the other. Both Joab and Abner began to grow nervous as the battle drug on. Eventually, men began to fall, yet not without slaying their opponent in the process. Each caught their adversary by the head and thrust their swords in their opponent's sides. They collapsed on the wet ground together, and the blood of slain Hebrews laced the entire field. All 24 men were dead. The champions of Abner and the champions of Joab were so equally matched that neither were victorious, an ironic and depressing symbol of the very conflict they found themselves in. Silence loomed over the foggy forest for a long while. Joab, with his two brothers beside him, waited with his army behind him. Abner was also still, waiting for Joab to make the first move. Joab unsheathed his sword beside his brothers Abishai and Asahel. He looked back to his men and shouted, Today we fight for a new Israel. Today we fight for a kingdom united under King David, the Lord's anointed. Today we fight to establish a kingdom of honor and strength. Join me, brothers. Battle cries erupted from Judah's ranks. The men unsheathed their swords and ran behind Joab. Abner responded and gestured for his men to advance. The two armies converged, and the army of Judah overwhelmed the army of Israel from the very beginning. Joab proved himself as a worthy tactician. Half his men met in the middle, while the other half came in from the flanks. Hundreds of Israelite men fell at the swords of Judah. Abner's men had speed on their side, but the army trained by David had a firm foundation. They were unshakable and immovable. Each blow was absorbed, then retaliated with a swift and decisive swing of their swords. Joab held his head high with pride as the men advanced towards the other side of the battlefield. Seven of Joab's men fell, but 360 of Abner's men fell. Knowing he was outmatched, Abner called for the rest of his men to retreat. Fall back! There is no hope for us this day! Save your strength and retreat! He cried. The remaining Israelites ran away afraid and despondent. Abner also ran in shame, furious that Joab had bested him so easily. The Israelite commander retreated to the rocky hills above the forest, making his way to higher ground. Asahel watched Abner retreat and began to run after him. Asahel, do not pursue him! Abishai yelled. However, Asahel would not listen. He ran with his sword held firmly in his hand, dodging tree branches and jumping over roots. He was the swiftest man in the entire nation, bridging the gap between him and Abner. Joab and Abishai were running up the mountain to stop their brother. They knew what Asahel did not, that Abner was a formidable opponent especially when provoked. Abner was halfway up the mountain when he saw Asahel running after him. 
Is that you, Asahel? He yelled. Asahel was climbing up the steep slope with ease, hopping from rock to rock. It is I, Asahel responded. You are mine to kill. You are a fool! Abner yelled from above. Turn back and enjoy your victory! Not until I remove your head from your shoulders. Asahel yelled in return. Abner reached the plateau of the mountain. Storm clouds raged above him. Rain was coming. Abner looked around him. The mountain's edge provided no escape. He was trapped. Asahel reached him and pointed his sword. No more running, he said. I have won. Thunder boomed from above and the clouds began to envelop the mountain. Abner took the spear from behind his back and readied himself. Turn back, Asahel, Abner warned. I do not want to kill you. Go back and enjoy the spoils of war. You've earned it. Asahel was filled with a prideful glow. If I kill you, I end this civil war and the country can be united again. But you will not kill me, you fool. Leave me. I do not wish to kill you and provoke the wrath of your brother. Abner truly did not want to harm the young man. He knew that it would only spark more trouble. However, he would do what he must to stay alive. Asahel burst forward with speed, without setting his feet on the ground. He was swift, but lacked a foundation. He leapt forward at Abner with his sword in a strike position. Abner widened his stance, took a single step backwards, and thrust his spear forward. Asahel landed on the tip of Abner's spear. It pierced his stomach and went out through his back. Abner pushed forward, throwing Asahel's body over the edge of the mountain. The boy fell down on the rocks below. Abner yelled in agony, knowing full well what he had just done. The storm clouds broke, and the rain descended from above violently. Abner looked over the edge at Asahel's body, then escaped down the side before Joab reached the top. Joab and Abishai climbed up to the plateau. The rain caused water to stream down the mountain, making the climb slippery and dangerous. When they reached the top, they found Asahel's sword on the floor. They looked over the edge to see their brother lying at the bottom with a spear through him. The two brothers climbed down to their brother and held him tight. The glow of lightning burst above them. Joab's entire body shook with rage. Anger boiled from within him. He rested his brother down and took out his sword. In the distance, he could see Abner escaping to the valley where his men had retreated. Abner... Joab whispered. The blood of my brother will be avenged. Abishai drew his sword as well, and the two of them ran into the pouring rain towards their target. The gray storm clouds blocked the setting sun. No color filled the skies. There was only darkness. Joab and Abishai pursued Abner like a pair of ravenous wolves. Abner ran up the hill overlooking the valley and halted. Joab and Abishai reached the bottom of the hill and saw Abner looking down at them. Abner panted and stuck his sword into the ground. Stretching his arms wide, he yelled through the rain. Shall the sword devour us forever? If you keep pursuing me, you know the end will be bitter. As Abner said this, the rest of his men came into sight behind him. A few hundred men with their swords drawn stared down at the two brothers. It will end in pain, Joab. My men will kill you, and then your men will consume mine. It will continue until we are all destroyed. Joab's fiery glare was not doused by the storm. 
his blood still boiled with hatred towards Abner. Abishai held his brother's shoulder. He shouted through the rain. There is no victory in this pursuit, Joab. They are already defeated. They would strike us down and then be consumed by our men. We would be dead, and no peace would be attained. Joab knew he was right. Joab's men were not far behind him. The fight would be brutal, and the only thing accomplished would be his own demise. Joab took out his dagger and gripped the blade with his bare hands. Blood dripped down his wrist and forearm. Stretching out his blood and rain-soaked hand to Abner, he said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely my men would not have given up until all your soldiers were destroyed. Hear me, Abner. The day will come when my brother's blood will be avenged. Joab could not see the chills crawling up Abner's spine. He knew in his bones that Joab was not a man of empty threats. Joab took the trumpet from his belt and blew it into the air. His men heard it and knew it was a signal to call off the attack. Abner and his men left and marched all night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, dragging their weary feet the whole morning until coming to Mahanaim. Joab returned with his men back to Judah. The entire time, Joab carried Asahel's body in his arms. Streaks of tears and dirt were caked onto his face as he entered Hebron. When David came out to greet them, his grin was replaced with sorrow. Joab's beloved baby brother and one of David's most faithful warriors had been slain. The servants attended to the body while David took in Abishai and Joab. The three of them sat by the fire with cups in their hands. Abishai was despondent, while Joab stared blankly at the flames with quiet rage. If they did not know our strength before, they know it now. Joab said quietly, Our men were equal in number, but clearly different in skill. We bested them in a matter of minutes. David gave a satisfied nod. Well done, Joab, David said. Now it is time to mourn your brother. That next morning, the storm clouds retreated and the sun's rays splashed the sky with bright pink and purple. Joab and Abishai lowered their brother into the tomb of their father in Bethlehem. David breathed in the crisp air, filling his lungs with the breath of home. The rest of David's mighty men were in attendance to mourn Asahel. As was custom when one of them fell, David sang a hymn of lament. His sorrowful tune resonated deeply with the men. Asahel's death represented the pain a civil war can cause, an unnecessary casualty in the struggle for power. David was determined to end it quickly, either by diplomacy or by force. Is God's nation doomed? Not only are there Philistines waiting to attack, but now a civil war has broken out within their borders. This episode doesn't begin or end on a high note for Israel, who is more divided now than ever. On one end, you have Ishbosheth, the harmless and corruptible son of a king. On the other end, you have David, the humble and courageous son of a herdsman. We are reintroduced to the concept of contrast in this episode, especially in the opening scenes. The placement of these two individuals is purposeful. Ishbosheth is sitting on his father's throne, pompous and spoiled. David is training with his men, attentive and energetic. The Bible isn't necessarily a book about merit and earning your status, since many kings are placed on the throne by birthright. 
However, we can't help but appreciate the fact that David has definitely earned the right to be king, or at least he's living up to the privilege. He has proven himself to be a strong, wise, passionate protector of Israel. Ispeshef, on the other hand, seems only concerned about the title of king. He wants to sit on the throne and pretend to be in charge, while all the while letting Abner run his kingdom. David is in the dirt and among his men, training and preparing. We can learn a lot from David and Ishbosheth in this episode. While one is concerned about his people, the other is concerned about his title. These are two fundamental differences between godly and worldly leaders. Ishbosheth shirks his responsibility and allows Abner to have control over the army. David, however, is hands-on with his men. He teaches the newer soldiers about the fundamentals of fighting. He reminds them that everything begins with your foundation. If your foundation is not secure, you are destined to collapse. It is like a house built on sand. If you are not on solid ground, anything can blow you down. This is an obvious callback to the prelude and a fundamental tenet of our spiritual life. Our foundation must be firm in the Word of God so that when the storms hit, we won't be shaken. Later on in the episode, the foundations of David's men are tested and they come out victorious. A reliance on God and a foundation set on his commandments sets David apart from other kings, and it will set us apart as well. When the world descends into disorder and corruption, we want to be people with a firm foundation. We don't want to be blown away by the tempest of culture and ideology. We meet a new character in this episode, Joab the brother of Eshiel and Abishai. Joab is an interesting character. He's a military man through and through. He seems a little rough around the edges, and I wonder how his personality will mesh with David's in the future episodes. David is a brilliant tactician and skilled warrior, but he is a lover before he is a fighter. It will be interesting to see if their two temperaments clash or cooperate. For now, Joab proves to be a faithful commander of David's army. He provides the king of Judah with sound wisdom by saying, The largest threat to you and your people are not from the outside, but from within our borders. Joab is correct, and we would be wise to pay attention to his words. The world around us is filled with catastrophe, corruption, and chaos. There are many threats out in the world. However, none of us stand a chance against these threats unless we have secured our own spaces. The nation of Israel represents our inner world and faith in God. We have our own civil wars within us that need to be fought before we can take on the outside world. Paul the Apostle calls this the war between the flesh and the spirit. Our own desires can war against God's desires, and our desire to do the right thing can war against our bent toward wickedness. If we can't fight the good fight within our own hearts, then we are doomed outside our borders. David would later on say in Psalm 101, I will ponder the way that is blameless. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. David understood the importance of preserving integrity within his own house. If he was able to keep the evil in his own heart at bay, then it gave him more strength when fighting the evil out in the world. Is your heart in order? Have you considered the compelling values in your own heart before criticizing the differences in the world? 
May we not fall into the trap Jesus warned us about. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. David sends Joab and his brothers to lead the charge against Abner. The dialogue between Joab and Abner is tense, and it seems clear that these two are destined to be enemies. The funny thing about this is that they seem to have similar personalities. This is a common irony we see in the world today. We often hate people who exemplify the same flaws we refuse to see in ourselves. Joab and Abner are mocking each other, unaware that they are both the same. This is a small introduction to another theme in this episode, and that is the theme of cutting off your nose to spite your face. When Joab's best men are pitted against Abner's best men, they are so equal that they all end up dead. This is supposed to reveal to us that there are no winners in this war, since they are fighting against themselves. Israel fighting Judah is like a hand trying to cut off its own fingers. Even if the hand succeeds, it is worse off. This war will have no winners, since they are countrymen and brothers. Abner and the Israelite army are defeated and flee, but Ashiel doesn't want Abner to get away. In Ashiel's perspective, if he can defeat Abner, he can end the war. We can respect his passion, but he was given ample warning not to attack. Sometimes we need to know when enough is enough and acknowledge that some wars can't be won right away. Ashiel, being the fastest among David's mighty men, wants to rush victory. To Abner's credit, he knows killing the boy is a bad idea. There is a subtle undertone in this episode that neither party wants to fight, but are doing what they think they must do. Abner does what he must do, which is defend himself. Both brothers are despondent, but Joab in particular is filled with rage. Joab introduces a new theme to our story, vengeance. In our story so far, vengeance hasn't been too much of a theme besides the time David almost killed Nabal. For the most part, David has been a man of mercy. We will see in the coming episodes that vengeance is Pandora's box. Once it is opened, a cycle of chaos ensues, and it is nearly impossible to stop. Will David be able to rein in Joab and keep him from making a mistake? Is the kingdom of Israel doomed to destroy itself, or will the Philistines destroy them before they get the chance? Find out in our next episode, The Blood of Abner. Thanks again for listening. For more inspiring stories, daily prayers, and wisdom to last a lifetime, go to Pray.com. And to expand your Heroes in the Bible journey, download the Heroes of the Faith devotional at TonyEvans.org forward slash heroes. Follow the podcast on Apple or Spotify to get the newest episodes right as they come out and always be inspired by the Bible. God bless. Hello, my name is Matthew Potter, co-founder of Pray.com. I wanted to ask, do you know what your bank does with your money? At America's Christian Credit Union, your everyday banking helps grow churches, expand the reach of missions agencies, and supports fellow believers across the country. Learn more about specials for switching to ACCU and their nationwide banking capabilities at americaschristiancu.com forward slash pray. Plus, the peace of mind knowing that this credit union is federally insured by the National Credit Union Administration.